I, this week and next week, in talking about our vision, and I call it Vision 2020. And I think these are going to be important talks in consideration to what God wants to do here in the next number of years. So let's bow our heads, if we would, and invite Jesus to speak to our hearts. Father, you have met with us in worship, and we are grateful. You have been present through the voice of your people and through the voice of angels singing around us. Holy Spirit of God, come now, I pray, and speak through my voice. And may people hear what's from you and that which is from you. And may you be able to separate that which isn't, that you might receive glory. May we be vessels as a community of people loving you and loving others. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just in less than nine years, we'll hit 2020. The year 2020. Experts say life in the year 2020 is going to be very different. Popular science magazine Cosmos, and I also saw and read some other futurists, have asked some world-leading scientists to forecast the future, as well as some futurists, and here are some of the things they came up with. Some things that I think those of you who are cleaning houses will love. Self-cleaning surfaces will be found in our homes. Coated with ultraviolet light, absorbing particles, the kitchen bench of tomorrow will disinfect itself better than a swipe of a sponge with a dash of bleach. By 2020, scientists even predict the rise of intelligent clothes. Like, this isn't smart. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> special fabrics fitted with monitors will study our health as we work, sleep, and exercise. Sports clothes will tell us if we're stretching or bending in ways that are harmful. If we are injured, our body temperature and physiology will trigger the chip and call the nearest hospital. By the year 2020, the new era of domestic bliss will have dawned. No more cleaning, dusting, or, or doing the laundry. No more ironing, folding clothes, or tidying the house. No more wiping up the toddler's dribble or vacuuming the grass that the kids have dragged in or your spouse has dragged into the house. These tasks will be done by our, our own domestic robots. Androids are predicted to be the must-have item of the 2020s. We'll have what some call the super internet as well, communications, where we will always be on and always connected. People, pets, and trillions of inanimate objects will communicate wirelessly every second of the day, delivering 3D holographic experiences, tactile simulations, odors, and tastes. And let me tell you, folks, that's not so far off. When I was down as the executive past, uh, director down at Trinity, one of the churches near there of 20,000 people had a number of satellite sites, and one of them was experimenting with the pastor being this holographic form in one of the churches. I don't know if it smelled and you could feel the guy, but anyway. If you think this picture of life in the next 10 to 20 years sounds unrealistic, consider this. How many people in 1985 would have thought computers and the mobile phones that we carry today would play such a central role in our lives in just that short period of time? In the same amount of time we're talking about, if you start looking at 2020, 2030, they, they talk about thinking of this, how much 
How, much, how, many, how many would have thought of children who would be gaming on the Internet or spending much of their time in virtual worlds like Second Life? Or that scientists would have decoded the human genome and cloned animals, including primates, back in 1985? According to futurologist and author Ray Hammond, just add a few years to 2020 and there will be one billion people over 65 years of age. Now start thinking about retirement and Social Security. Japanese scientists are already developing robots to look after those who are elderly. The robots will be a permanent feature of everyday life, especially across Europe for some reason, they say. We should prepare for robot nannies, replacement organs grown to order and living to the average age of 130 by 2040, 2050. That's what they predict. Let me ask you something more close to home. On the third Sunday in July, year 2020, what will life be like for you? Just, just a little under nine years. This same Sunday, 2020. How old will you be? I'll be 62 years old. And if I'm anything... Like Pastor Paul Bergeron here, I'll still be 26 years away from retirement. <laughs> Where will you be? How old will you be? Will you be in college, some of you? Some of you really young, will you be starting high school? Will some of you be married? Maybe some of you who are married have some of your first children? Maybe own your own home? for the first time? Will you be in a new job, beginning a career? Will some of you be further down the road, having your kids graduated from high school, and then actually see some graduate from college, and then some of you know, having them move back in home as well? Will you be grandparents? Experiencing for the first time that little one that you can hold and treasure and give back. Will you be retired in a retirement home? Will you be in some kind of assisted living situation? Who knows in nine years, will you pass into eternity? And will you have known Jesus and will you have walked with him and understood his forgiveness? And will you face him and say, I have given you, Jesus, all that I am. All that I am. You can make that choice today. We could make that choice as a church. Because I began to think about that and I said, where will we as a church be in just less than nine years? I had D dig up the records on this and there's a bit of confusion to the official birth date of the church. January 10, 1951, a prayer group began to meet in Rose Fadden's home. June 25, 1952, the group began meeting in their first building, Widston School. Anybody know where that is in Wyzetta? called themselves the Wyzetta Christian Fellowship. And then in January 1953, they affiliated with the Evangelical Free Church and officially became known as Wyzetta Evangelical Free Church. And 
what Dee tells me, we officially celebrated our 50th anniversary on October 2003 because that fit into our church calendar better than the other two dates. <laughs> so it must have been a long gestation process. You know, in 2020, the church will be 67 years old. And my hope, my prayer, when I came and I sensed the call of God to lead this congregation three and a half years ago, was that this church would not just survive, but thrive. That we would see God do a work in our hearts and and begin to do something within us as a people, and through that, have an impact on the community around us, but even more so, an impact on our homes, and even more so, an impact on our individual lives. As I've met and I work with the leadership, and our desire is for a vibrant church full of life, hitting full stride, and my prayer is that in year 67 of this church, which would be 2020, that we will be a church filled with people from every generation, loving God, loving others, relevantly engaged in this community and throughout the world. And this will happen, and will only happen, based on decisions we make, I believe, today. What we have before us in the days ahead of us. You know, it's interesting, our vision was the, is really what has been guiding us as we put this together, as we make decisions, which is a good thing. You have visions and you have a mission, then you have values, and those things hopefully begin to set a direction and a course for where you're going. Our vision, the guts of it, come from really the words of Jesus Christ himself, who was quoting, really, Moses, back in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, when a guy who was a religious leader came up to Jesus, he, Jesus had just told the Sadducees, and he had just kind of um, baffled them because they had this question about the resurrection, and if you're married and you get married again and get married again, how can there be a resurrection? Because you know, And Jesus goes, you guys just don't get it. You don't understand God's word. So then this Pharisee, after seeing how he handled the Sadducees, goes, well, I'll give it a try because we Pharisees, we do get the word of God. And so he says to him, Jesus, you know, tell me, would you, what's the greatest commandment that, that God wants for us to live by? What is it that God is calling us to do? And when I think about this commandment, it is not just a commandment to obey, because it is also a vision. When you obey it, you become what that commandment says, which is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything. And so I want you to read our vision together. I'm going to ask you to stand, because some of you look like you're falling asleep already. <clears throat> but I'm going to ask you to stand, because I want us to say this together. And really, this is a choice for us if we want to live this out. Our vision Let's say it together. To be a multi-generational church growing in our love of God and people, relevantly engaged as followers of Jesus in our local community and throughout the world. Thank you. You may be seated. What I find is interesting when you look at this vision, it actually holds some difficult tensions, three of them. And I got so excited as I was preparing this message, I wrote 16 pages 
And I sent it to Andrea and I said, I'm praying about how to edit. And she said, just do it in two weeks. So the third message that I have, I don't know what I'll do with, but we're going to look at today the first tension and the next week look at the second and what I call third tensions. And the first two tensions are really ones that are within the statement itself. We can keep that up there just for a second, the statement. The first two are within that statement. And the third one is really, it's pretty unique to all vision statements. So tension one, to be multi-generational and yet relevantly engaged. That is a difficult tension for a community of people to live out. Tension number two, to love God and to love others. We'll look at this all throughout scripture. This is a difficult tension to live out. And number three, which I think is true for any vision statement, the tension of moving it from paper to reality, to full participation. To be far more than a community of spectators, but to become an army of committed individuals who are sent out to impact and influence the world. Now, I want you to note in our vision, there is nothing about how large we'll become as a church. There really isn't about a region we're going to try and take for God. There isn't this sense of, 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 of all kinds of programs we're going to develop or things such as that. It's not some kind of financial thing. It's about the kind of individual persons we will become, which will translate into the kind of community we will be. It's really about a way of being together and about a way of becoming. It's about more influence that leads to impact, knowing that as we set strategies and we begin to start understanding the tactics in these next few years, that as we begin to fulfill those things and we begin to find those places where everyone serves and people are praying about how do I, how do I engage with you, God? What do you have on my heart to do in this body? What you begin to start seeing is you see a people who come together because of what God is doing in them. It's this, it's this wonderful truth that God shared with me a number of years ago when I was doing, doing, doing. I was trying so hard. I was striving. I, it, I, ambition um, was the thing that was pushing me. It was ambition, though, for the glory of God. So it wasn't like I was in my mind. It was just that, that drive that you have. And as I, I looked at that, I began to realize, not really realize, the Lord kind of stopped me in my tracks. And he said, Kevin... The most important thing for you as a leader and a pastor of people is that you become present with me, that you spend time with me, that you get to know me, that you take time in the morning, that you begin to pray and begin to allow me to work in your heart so that well-doing will proceed from this fact that you are involved with me so that I am creating well-being. And out of well-being will always come well-doing and not just a flurry of activity. I am convinced that if you individually and we as a church corporately say, God, we want to come here. We want to worship you. We want your presence in our midst. God, I'm going to live not trying to hope that somehow these people lead us into his presence, but I'm going to be a person individually who will seek your presence. The presence of God in you is what we want to become. That's what will cause this tension to work in such a way that it releases impact throughout the world because we will become a kind of people. It's not about how much land or territory or how big our church gets and how financially successful it is. We could be a church of 500 if God so desired and make this world change drastically. 
And you know why that's the case? There was a little church in Jerusalem that planted a church in Antioch. And it was the church in Antioch that spread throughout the rest of the world. That little church there did its job. I don't know what our job is. I do know this. Our job is to, each one of us, seriously before God, with all our heart, say, I'm going to live in your presence and become the kind of person that's ruled by the fruits of the Spirit. And I will begin to live in such a way that I'm spiritually healthy before you and with one another. And when that begins to happen, it will release presence of God in your life and everywhere you go. And so when I look at this vision statement, as it was being put together, I I didn't understand all that God was putting in here. But these tensions that are in this naturally force us to grow. That's what's wonderful about this vision statement. It's not about, it's really leaving what God wants to do from the sense of impact up to Him. Our job is to be in a place where He influences our life and through us, and He influences, and He does what He wants to do, and we will be surprised at the things God does. He always has surprises. Look at any of the times the disciples were with Him. They were surprised because they were present with Him. Intentions are are good because they create impact. We've recently secured the Slingshot Group, who is in the process of helping us work through finding a person who will lead us as a worship pastor. And and I remember we had a meeting with them and we were asking, why the name Slingshot? It's kind of a funny name, right? It's catchy. But he said the stretching is good. They, as a group, go into churches All around the country who are in these transition times and whenever you're in transition, it's tense. And whenever you're in that tense, it's stretching. It's forcing people to either act in the character of their flesh or to act in the character of the Holy Spirit by the fruits that God places in our hearts. And he says, what's interesting is when you go through these times of tension, we have found that we can help sometimes if churches will move through that catapult the impact of God. And our job is to try and help them do that from a worship standpoint. That's where they come in and they give us their professional opinion of what they think we should do. And and think about it for a second, the kind of impact that happens when you have tension. How far does that stone go when you just have it's just loose and slack? Not very far. But tension properly under the guidance of the Spirit, as people respond to Him, have the potential for great impact. That's why they call themselves the Slingshot Group. Their hope is that they will actually come into these situations, help the congregation as they are in this stretching time to make an impact in worship. Not only does stretching cause that kind of impact, it causes maturity and trust. That's, that's where the impact comes from. We're forced through each of these tensions that we're going to be looking at, to deeply trust God. These tensions force us to grow in Christ-like character, to learn how to relate in healthy ways as an individual and a family. And that is something, folks, the world needs badly. Your workplace needs badly. Your community needs badly. 
I look at you, some of you kids, and I go, your school systems need that. You need parents who are modeling that kind of healthy relationship, growing deeper in their trust of God, growing in honesty with one another, and learning how to hear and understand and forgive and, and, and walk together, and modeling that in a way so that you can do the same, because the patterns they set are the patterns you're probably going to repeat unless you allow God to break those. And it causes opportunities to grow. In our church, in our ability to listen, which we as elders and I as a pastor am am committed to to do, to understand, to forgive, to reconcile. And also for you to follow God appointed leadership. An opportunity for you to make leading a joy. I happen to think our vision is not far from the vision Jesus lived. He was constantly creating tension so that the Spirit of God would work in the hearts of his disciples. About a month or so ago, we had a lively staff meeting full of discussion. My parents used to refer to those times when they would be arguing as times of full of discussion. But we thought you were arguing. No, no, it was just a lively discussion. And there was some tension. And I'm amazed at how quickly I and others, when there's disagreement and tension and those kind of things tense up. And when you get in those, it's very easy to react rather than to respond and slow things down and listen to the spirit and and pause and be connected and find out that relationship is far more important than being right. After the meeting, Lindsay Deline, who works with our preschoolers, handed me, basically sent me an article the article is by Reggie Joyner. It says, tension is good. For a long time, I bought into the myth that tension on a team is bad. So my goal was to simply try to avoid it. It makes sense. If we get everyone working together in a non-debative, stress-free, harmonious environment, then we can do great things together. Somewhere along the way, I learned to not only respect, but to invite the kind of tension that pushes us to make better decisions and to clarify what really matters. There's not one aspect of life where tension doesn't have critical value. Tension between parties and branches of a government creates a needed systems of checks and balances. Tension in science can lead to remarkable insights and discoveries. Tension in a family provides an opportunity to demonstrate commitment and unconditional love. Tension within a team pushes them to a better perspective and deeper relationships. And if you want a good example of potential tension has to affect your team, just think about the relationship Jesus had with his disciples. Cole's study of the New Testament recognized that it was packed with tension. Too many Christians, I as well, for many years, had this image of the 12 best friends sitting around a peaceful hillside with Jesus telling him funny and insightful stories. It's just too easy to miss the point that Jesus always made his point in the middle of some extremely tense moments. He actually leveraged tension to mold his disciples into the kind of men who would change the world. And he writes, think about it. And he gives some things. But I say, think about it a second. God is allowing for this time, whether we say in the revision thing, sigmoid curve, call it a rodeo, call it time of wilderness, call it a time of transition. I don't care what you call it. Think about it. Could God actually, with people who are deeply trusting him, growing in Christ-like character, be preparing this mature group of people for the 
kind of impact that only he can do. Because Jesus leveraged tension to mold disciples into the kind of men who would change the world. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes to challenge the disciples' deep-rooted prejudices. He broke sacred traditions so they would value people. He led them into a stormy sea to take away their fear. He angrily interrupted a church service to expose how greed can corrupt leaders. Can you imagine how tense these moments would have been? He let one of his best friends die to show them the power of the resurrection. He publicly debated religious leaders so he could clarify what really mattered. He didn't always explain what he said so they would wrestle with what he meant. He let them argue and have power struggles to teach them how to serve each other. He refused to defend himself to an enraged mob so they would know God's mission was more important than their own lives. He died a violent death to show them how to forgive and be forgiven. And then he left them standing on a hillside after he disappeared into the sky with no clear indicator of where he was going or when he was actually going to come back. Jesus never avoided tension. He did just the opposite. He led his disciples right into the middle of some of the most dangerous, stressful situations imaginable to stretch their faith. No wonder they were ready to confront a broken world with the message of restoration and redemption. They had been trained for three years to trust God's provision and power against impossible odds. And those lessons learned during those stressful and difficult moments gave them the determination and passion to show God's love and grace. Jesus used tension to deepen their message and anchor their hearts to discoveries about God and themselves that happen now in their lives forever. And so he writes, tension is good. It's absolutely required if you have an authentic faith. It's critical if you hope to engage in God's story of restoration and redemption. Tension compels us to respond to a higher calling. Tension helps us face our doubts. Tension challenges who we think we are. Tension clarifies what we believe of God. Tension prepares us to live our lives with a deeper message as a part of a bigger story. So invite it. Create it, he says, if necessary. If you avoid tension... You are potentially robbing your team as the kind of defining moments that shape their character, stretch their faith, and clarify powerful insights. So embrace it. And when it's before you, hold it. Well, I was going to go into tension one, but I'm not going to. It's really hot in here. I want us to be thinking about these tensions this next week, and we're going to talk about them. These three tensions in our vision statement, cause us and allow for us the opportunity to turn to God in all humility and to trust Him. He gives each one of us the opportunity to respond with one another, not against you against me, knowing that our, our battle, folks, is not against flesh and blood. It gives us opportunity to become the kind of people that fill this guts of this vision statement who love God and love others. But we do something in an age right now that isn't seen often, which is multi-generational, and seeks to do it by relevantly at the same time engaging in our culture. And I'm going to share with you next week how those tensions play out. 
because they are important for us to understand. Let's pray. Father, you have um, directed, I know, me to this place at this time in this hour. And I know, God, you have called elders to serve. And you have called ministry leaders into positions to minister. You have called people into places throughout this body. And so, God, I pray as we contemplate the year 2020, where each one of us will be individually and yet even greater, where we will be together, if you so will, as a body, where we will be in what you want to do. And, and may who we become make all the difference in the lives that are waiting to be touched by what you can do through who we are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.